Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where today's most exciting solopreneurs share their startup stories. They also deliver tangible strategies that they would implement personally if starting their business over today. Each episode is a startup masterclass. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. This is Kevin Pruitt with Rising Tide Startups, and my guest today is Bill Bice. Bill, thanks for joining us on Rising Tide. It's good to be with you. So, Bill, share a little bit about yourself with our Rising Tide listeners. Well, I feel like I've uh, always always been an entrepreneur. I started my, uh, uh, well, first company when I was 14, started my first software company when I was, when I was 18. Um, you know, I, I thought I already knew how to do everything, so it took me a long time to actually build that company. But we ended up becoming uh, the, the, the biggest in our niche of uh, legal software and, and got to sell that company to Thomson Reuters and join the management team of a you know, really, really large business. And so I got a, a ton of great experience from that. And because of that, I got to turn around and uh, found and invest in a whole series of companies. And so it's just been, it's been a blast to do all that. Did I hear correctly that the company that you sold to Thomas Reuters, you, you started when you were 18? I did, yes. That's, uh, that's pretty ambitious for, for any age, but especially at 18. So, what, and actually, I think I'm going to call you out on something because you said you, you're, you had your first entrepreneurial endeavor at 14. Actually, I, I think I heard a story somewhere that maybe you were selling pencils on the playground a lot earlier than that. So, did I do my research? <laughs> You uh, you did good. I, I, yeah, I don't usually tell that story, but the it comes from um, I had I had convinced my mom to buy the the really big box of pencils, and then I went into first grade and and uh, sold them to my classmates. Um, what had happened is is like any good entrepreneur, I had identified what the pain point was. Absolutely. Is, if you if you forgot your pencil, you didn't get to go to recess, and so that that that's a real pain point if that's you're a in first real grade. pain point. That that's a that's a major issue when you're six. That there's no doubt about it. So, <laughs> so you went from bilking these poor kids on the playground out of their milk money to starting a software company, and so walk us through. So at 18, I mean. For you to even be thinking in these terms, kind of what happened in, you know, from say 14 to 18 that, that would, I mean, that often the story is, oh, my dad bought our first Tandy TRS computer and, and I just started playing with it and fell in love. So was there, do you have a story similar to that, 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 uh, you know, what caused you to even head in the software realm? Well, there was a strip mall that was right next to our high school. And so I, I would get bored at school and go jump over the fence. And there was a, a family business there that was a, a sports store. And what I wanted was computers to play with. And they were happy to buy me computers if I got their newsletter to go out and you know make other things happen for uh, this little chain of three stores that they had in this one strip mall. And, and out of that grew creating a business that put on road races, so marathons and 10Ks mm-hmm. and so on. And so we'd go out and get corporate sponsors. And then I wrote the software on, on you know, this Apple II to track the people who were running the race and use a joystick to mark every time somebody came across the finish line. So that got me writing software, which then led into helping other small businesses that were buying these you know, newfangled microcomputers and had no idea what to do with them, which was really just a consulting business. Um, that turned into writing software for a series of local businesses. One of them was a law firm. And, and eventually I had the bright idea that I should focus in on one market. Yeah. And, 
Uh, and, and I chose legal out of no particular deep strategy other than the fact that the, the competition tended to be a lawyer who had hired a, you know, in this time period, a visual basic programmer to, to write software for them. And, and so we just came in looking at it in terms of, well, how do, how do we build a better product? And that was the only, only reason I chose that market. So were you, were you kind of a techie in high school? I mean, was that something that you, you enjoyed doing or was it kind of like working at the sports store? That was what kind of led you into the tech, tech side of things. Yeah, it started with the, it started with the tech. So this, you know, this is when the Mac first came out. Yeah. So getting a, a business owner to buy a Mac for me to play with, that was, you know, that was perfect. <laughs> that was a, that was quite a coup. That's exactly right. So I'll, I'll make you a deal. I'll, I'll uh, send out your newsletter and you buy a brand new $2,000 Mac or whatever exactly. it was at the time. So, so walk us through the, the, you were with, you were working with a local attorney there. And I mean, it sounded like that somehow you had to shift from that to kind of incorporating the West business law di dictionary in your software or, or what was the, what was the actual focus of the software, the application itself? Well, so it was really, we, we developed what was essentially the first ERP system. It, it doesn't get called that in the legal market, but you know, the first integrated platform that, that did everything that a law firm needed to do. So you, you start with the billing and accounting and it flows all the way through to the workflow and case management. And, and so at the time, everything was, these individual niche applications that didn't work together. And so what really made us successful is, is we just came in with a different view and built one platform that, that automated the whole firm. And so that gave us a real competitive advantage and we'd go into these, uh, you know, 20, 50, 100 attorney firms, give them one piece of software and replace seven or eight different systems, which of course is really kind of a mess to deal with. Mm -hmm. So um, is it, was it more timing related that, that it just was the kind of the perfect storm of putting all these applications together or was it really a, a functional thing that you said, you know, we really have to build something that, that kind of puts all these things together or, or I, you understand kind of the, the framework of the question. I mean, I feel like I'm kind of stumbling around. The question well, yeah, right but there. I think you're getting at a really important issue, which is that, that uh, I think timing is so underrepresented in terms of its importance as to how successful you are with a startup because you can take the same team same idea and and whether you're matched up at the right timing with the market is absolutely crucial and so right. we we really lucked into the timing for that um, i think you know you when you're in that market you often get asked you know do, do you have a jd do you, do you do you understand what lawyers do and, and i've always believed that that my advantage was that, that I wasn't a lawyer. I didn't come in believing mm -hmm. I knew how to run a practice. I'd actually listen to the firm administrator, the attorneys, and understand what they needed to do. And, and just that separation of, of objectivity, right? It's always easier to tell somebody what they should do in their business than figure out what it is you should do for yourself, right? It's yeah. sort of the basis of the consulting business model. Right. And, and that's what we did in these firms. We just saw this, this obvious need that it's so difficult to manage all these different pieces. So we wrote one and then we wrote the next one and then we just wrote the next one and you just keep adding and adding and adding. And it just, it worked a whole lot better to do it that way. Now, of course, it's commonplace in the industry. You, you buy the, you know, the equivalent of an ERP for your law firm that has everything pulled together mm -hmm. because it's so much easier to do it that way. It's almost like, you know, QuickBooks says to small business accounting software. I mean, it's just, there's a kind of an off the shelf, maybe answer to, to what they would need. But so how did you, how did you scale this, this application? I mean, 
it's it's one thing to start with, you know, to write this for a law firm. It's something else to to have an, you know, a multi, you know, you fill in the the dollar amount exit on the back end, you know, where you've scaled this software, you know, nationally or even globally. Well, and, and so having that point of differentiation, that's a great starting point. So you've got something unique to talk about. Um, we purposely chose to go into secondary markets. So we built this company in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's a secondary market. And the first markets we went into were St. Louis, Minneapolis. So we didn't go to LA and New York yeah. and Dallas, right. where there were well-established competitors in those markets. We built up a really nice base of business in, in markets where they also had to travel in order to compete in that market. And, and then we, we built it through word of mouth. It was, it was just taking care of one firm at a time. And I was, you know, I was literally at the age of 18, 19, 20, walking into a law firm and talking to the managing partner of a firm, selling him on the software that I was writing the night before, and then doing the data conversion and modifying the software on the fly to match what, uh, you know, what they needed in that firm. It's, you know, it's a tough way to get there, but, but it also works. And, yeah. and therefore we were able to build the business organically, right? We never right. brought an outside investment because it was just that sort of, you know, bootstrapping approach. I, um, I, I'm trying to get a, like a podcasting service started on the side as well. And I, I understand the difference between current speak and future speak. And it sounded like to me that, that as you said, I was, I was programming the night before. And it sounds like to me you were programming as much the night after as you were the night before where you would go in and they would, they would kind of point out that the pain points that they're trying to, to address. And then you go back and kind of write the application to kind of fit that, that, uh, that need there. So how much was, was it truly future speak as you were at this 18 year old, you know, mock kid with some moxie walking into these, these attorney's offices and, and number one, did they, did they take you seriously or was it like that, that was also a, a hurdle you had to overcome was that, you know, these guys that, you know, at least probably mid thirties and above you're are taking this 18 year old kid seriously that they, he can actually solve a problem they have. Yeah. And that's the beautiful thing about software, right? Which is you, you can demo something that's, that's really not there. And so, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but I was really using lean startup principles. Yeah. Like, let's, let's show the thing we're capable of doing. Let's get customer feedback for it. And, and then you've got to be honest about what you can deliver after the fact, but it's always been the best way to test out your startup, which is create the, create that MVP and, and go test it against the market and find out what the real reaction is. I think you have to ask for money when you're doing that because mm -hmm. that's the, that's the real test that tells yeah. you whether, whether you've really got something or not. So it is really just that lean startup iterative approach. And of course, when, you know, when Stanford started, uh, really popularizing that concept, I, I immediately was attracted to it because mm -hmm. that's really what we had been doing. And did you call Eric Reese and say, um, I'm sorry, I've been doing this for 10 years. Do I get, I'll split any credit with you, you know, because I'll, I'll add some and you can add some. But So walk us through the, the, the growth of that from say age 18 to whenever the exit was. What was the kind of the hockey stick you know, upwardly right trend line that, that, uh, I mean, I have in mind, but, but, uh, I mean, you were there. So what was it like to, to grow that? Well, it, for a long time, it, it took a long time because the, you know, the biggest mistake I made was I wasn't open to mentorship and advice from people who had been there and done that. 
So it took me a long time to, to figure out how to actually build a business. So mm-hmm. it was a 15 year arc. The first 10 years were figuring out what the heck I was doing. And then the last five years, you know, we ended up on the 500 three years in a row and we had a, we had a 78% uh, a CAGR, the you know, average growth rate across that five year time period. And so we had a really high growth um, once we really figured, once we really figured it right. out. Right. That, that's amazing. I mean, you said Inc. 500? Yeah, we were, we were on the Inc. 500 for three years in a row. That, that's what really got us the attention to have the, the potential to sell the company, mm-hmm. which, which I wasn't really even interested in, uh, in doing. But uh, West, who was kind of the 800-pound gorilla of the, of the yep. market, you know, in, in those days they were you know, publishing the, the books that are in the law library. Now it's all right. online. Uh, but we knew they were going to acquire somebody in the space and we, we weren't that excited about them, uh, picking somebody that was a competitor and, and raising them up. So we kind of inserted ourselves into that conversation and, and ended up selling our company to them. So, so Thomas Reuters owned West at that time or, or vice versa? Yeah, or? it was just Thompson at the, at the yeah, top. Thompson, yeah. So when you exited, I mean, I, I can't imagine, I mean, it was a 15 year overnight success. So when you exited from say 18 to, you know, mid thirties and you're, you, you have that check in the bank and you're going, I mean, were you, you the sole owner of that or did you have partners that were invested or did you have take on some VC money, at, you know, in the, in the process of growing that company? Yeah, we never brought in outside investment. Um, but we had, uh, I've, I've always been a big believer in the people who, who build the company having participation. So yeah. we had, you know, we had stock options for the team. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, that I learned is it's a lot easier to get there if you have partners. So I had brought on a couple of partners along the way. Um, it's one of the things that I always uh, counsel when I'm, you know, when I'm working with an entrepreneur today, if, if they're not able to convince a partner that their idea is, is worth coming into and putting mm-hmm. in that same, uh, blood and sweat into it, then, then you have to really think is, is it really that great of an idea? Yeah. And, and so often, you know, startups with, with two founders just on average are much more successful than, than single founders. And it just took, it took me a long time to figure that out. When did you bring somebody on? Uh, so it was about five years in, um, before I really started to add to, the management team brought in a VP of sales that was a partner in the business and the, you know, head of customer service, the same thing, which, you know, is obviously crucial in a, in a business like this. Right. So you're, you're 18 years old. You're, are, are you doing all of the programming yourself at the uh, initially? So when we started, we had, uh, we had a team of five people. So, so you were, we, yeah, was, you were, was, you were the sales developers. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you were you were out there hitting the streets and selling the product, and they were they were kind of building it in the background as as needed or making those changes. Yeah, all, all the above. <laughs> I guess at that stage, you, everybody does everything. So yeah, yeah. it's out of necessity. So when you when you exited, what was the next step? Well, so it's the only time I've ever worked for anybody. And it, and it was, uh, you know, it was an amazing education. So I took my small company with 120 people and that got me on the management team of this, you know, over $2 billion division of Thompson. Mm. 
And it really showed the value of recurring revenue because that was the business they were already in. It was an information driven business. Just an amazing concept to start every year with, you know, 80% of your revenue already booked. And of course, today we know that as a SaaS model, vastly better uh, business model to be in in software. So uh, definitely fell in in love with recurring revenue. But what was what was really shocking about being on that management team? So I go from running my little software company to now I'm on this team of you know ten people that's running this huge company, and and I only got to be there because we were the first software company they bought, and it was part of the strategy for where they were going. But the business wasn't actually run any differently, right? There was just a lot more zeros after it. I was really right. expecting like, you know, deep, amazing level of sophistication and how the business was run, but it was the same kind of, you know, crazy conversations we were having in our management team meetings, just, uh, you know, just on a different scale in terms of the numbers of, of, of zeros and employees that we were talking about. So how long was it that you stayed on with the company after, after the sale went through? So I stayed on for three and a half years after that and created a, created a new division within West that brought knowledge management out to uh, the majority of the largest firms in the world. And so the, the, whole, the whole experience was, was really amazing training. It's very different to launch a new product within a large company. Uh, it's a whole different set of challenges and advantages yeah. that you have in doing that. But what I really learned is that I would much prefer to be off doing that myself right. in one company. You don't really get the rewards for creating that kind of success in a large company. Sure. So, but you went into it. I mean, that was part of the sale. That was a kind of negotiated, like, you know, was it, was it negotiated for three and a half years or that's just what it turned out to be? Uh, that's just what it turned out to be. So part of it was we got really lucky. So we we closed the sale of that company on August 22nd of 2001. So this is three weeks before 9-11. Yeah. And, you know, that couldn't have worked out any better. Oh, because man. Cash flow wasn't the predominant issue that it would have otherwise been. No doubt. So we, would, you know, we certainly would have survived that, but we would have gone through significant layoffs and it would not mm-hmm. have been, a, wouldn't have been a fun experience. And I mean, even the the purchase price might have might have gone down after the, after nine eleven versus before. I mean, well, it probably wouldn't have happened, right? Because yeah. everything froze at that point. It yeah. would have been a whole different deal, you know, two years later. So I'm I'm curious because I mean, I, we we talked to a number of of founders that have you know had successful exits, and and it's interesting. I mean, I think people think you know it's like you won the lottery. You know, you you have all this money in the bank, and you're thinking now I can just go to Aruba and sit in a you know, under a cabana and just, you know, drink Mai Tais all day and, and just kick back and enjoy life. But that's, that's generally not how we're wired, is it? it it's not. I mean, you do all this. This is why I really believe the journey is, is so much more important than the end result. Because all that happens when you, when you do that and you sell your company is you turn around and do it again. Yeah. And, and the thing that I learned is, you know what, it's really tough to do again. It's like, it took a it took a tremendous amount of effort to do the first time, and and yes, you you know more, but guess what? It's really hard to do it the second time too. There's, what do you think that is? Because, uh, and let me let me kind of frame the question a little bit because I think that there would be things that you would have learned the first time that certainly would have would have helped you the second time. I mean, just kind of the school of hard knocks and think, okay, I need to do this, 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 and this, you know, to make sure that that uh, we had these, these pieces in place, the people in place, the strategies in place, 
financing in place, that type of thing. But is it is it more related to the idea that, that causes it to be difficult or is it more related to timing? I mean, you mentioned that earlier or what what is the, in your mind, what's the primary factor that makes it difficult to do a second time? Well, for me, it was overconfidence. I, I thought I knew what I was doing. And, and so then you start another <laughs> And it turns out it's still really difficult. And right. just because you have that experience to leverage, it doesn't mean you have the golden touch and it's suddenly all going to work out. Yeah. It's still really tough to do. And, you know, there's a reason that, that VCs would prefer to invest in second time entrepreneurs because you, 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 you have that experience. Mm-hmm. But, you know, VCs make the same mistake of because you got lucky and happen to be really successful with your first business. Therefore, by definition, you're going to be really successful with your second business. Absolutely. And it just doesn't happen that way. Right. Is it, I mean, is there, you mentioned that VCs, they like kind of second time startups or whatever. Is it just, is it, I mean, I've heard, I've heard vicariously that it, that it could be true that they're okay with you failing even your first time, you know, because of they think the lessons you've learned or whatever. So, what, yeah, what's your I mean, take on I invest that? in a lot of startups, and I would prefer to have somebody who started the company and failed than have this just be their first company. What's the know exactly yeah. what that's like? Right, and and the pain involved in in uh, in that. But I, I interviewed someone earlier this week that that uh, had won a couple of like you know the incubator prizes and and uh, accelerators, and so they ended up coming from Australia to San Francisco, and we're trying to raise, you know, kind of their initial funding, and we're in another program, and literally, it just, it just never got traction, and now they've gone back, and they started something else, but it's, it's exactly what you said. I mean, it's, they, they have the taste of that pain in their, you know, in their mouth, and, and so they're, it seems like they're much hungrier, and they're probably a little wiser, and, and, uh, but it, it hasn't like dulled their enthusiasm for, for the, you know, the chase, so to speak. And, uh, it's, it looked like as I asked you the question about, you know, why did, why would you start up something else after you were so successful? You know, it's like your eyes almost lit up and I could see kind of the DNA of a, not of a true serial entrepreneur in your eyes about, you know, I, I would probably do this for free almost I mean, because it's just who I am. It's just the way I'm wired. So how do you, when you're, I mean, you're actually coaching people now as well and, and doing the, the agency with Boon Time or is that, you know, how's your day spent most of the time to now? Well, so I'm going after a really big problem with, with Boon Time and it, it comes directly from my experience in the companies I've started and invested in, which is uh, how good you are to go to market really determines whether you, whether you get a payoff, mm-hmm. right? So, you put a tremendous amount of work into building a, a, a great product or service, but uh, are, are you good at marketing? That's going to determine the end result. And, and right. I've, you know, and I've done it in every route. I've hired high-end agencies. I've built the full team internally. I've had the CMO with all outsourced resource, you know, and they really marketing is a very frustrating discipline. It, there's no other place in our businesses that we allow the lack of scale and efficiency to exist other than this one place in marketing. And in fact, you, you go into marketing so that nobody will understand what you do. Right? It's the great <laughs> thing. And, and so I really wanted, wanted to change that. And because I have this programming background, it's just natural for me to look at it from the standpoint of the data. Mm-hmm. And because we're at a stage now where, where, you know, really almost all marketing is digital marketing. Right. 
we have an amazing amount of data that comes with that. In fact, we have too much. Mm -hmm. There's that old quote that gets attributed to John Wanamaker. You know, I know half my advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. Well, (laughs) that was absolutely true before. Now we have the opposite problem. You may not know how your money's being wasted because you're, you're just... The, the immense amount of data you're dealing with is, is so tremendous. So you've got to find ways to turn that into information that you can make decisions on. But if you do that, you can take the same sort of lean startup iterative approach where you constantly are learning and really figuring out what, what works. Right. And that gives right. us a unique ability to, to change this sort of core problem that we've all always had with marketing. Is that primarily like through A-B testing or uh, just looking at the analytics of, of the ad spend and things like that? Or, or is it is there more broadly, uh, what are the analytics that you're really looking at? Well, so the first thing I would say is that, is that a lot of businesses never need to spend $1 on paid advertising. Like we have this amazing ability to network like we've never had before. Yeah. And in particular right now with the crisis that we're dealing with, it's just accelerating this trend. And so, you know, we specialize in B2B where so many of the sales opportunities are created face to face. They're based on trade shows and conferences and events. And, and those are not going to come back the way that they were before. Yeah. Right. Cause we just, yeah. we're getting set in a new pattern here yeah. and we're learning how to do business without the same level of travel expense mm-hmm. that we had. Yeah. And, and so you, you have to move your marketing forward. And so I'm a huge proponent of the, cause the, the one thing that's obvious is that word of mouth is the one kind of marketing that just absolutely works. And now we're in this great place where because we're all digitally connected, we can actually amplify the effect of that. Right. We can make word of mouth happen. It's not, it's not just this old school thing where you sit back and, and wait for it to occur. Um, but presuming you do the, the really hard work, which is take care of your clients and do the things that would generate referrals anyway, mm-hmm. we're now in this amazing place where, where we, can, we can make more of those referrals happen. And the best way to do that is to follow the, is to follow the data, see what creates engagement with your audience. So you can, you can measure how effective you are at building that audience. That, by the way, I think is the, the number one undervalued asset in every business is all the clients, past clients, everybody in your network, that audience that you can talk to without paying any third-party media exactly. company. Exactly, yeah. It is this amazing asset. And if you, if you really leverage it, it's incredible what that can do for for the growth of your company. Uh, so following that data of understanding what's effective in building that audience and what creates engagement with them, you know, that really builds a marketing machine that then just propels your company forward. So when you're engaging with them, are you doing it more on a, um, like when you're engaging with your network, is it, is it more on a um, referral system? Is it like, we're, we're doing add-on sales, we're doing, you know, we're, we're leveraging like even people that said no before you're circling back with them to maybe, maybe get that yes this time or whatever, because it, I mean, the one thing that the huge advantage is that you, you do get an answer when you contact them because you've had, you know, you've had a contact with them before. So they will answer an email or they will answer a LinkedIn, you know, ping on LinkedIn or something like that. So is that, I mean, what's the, how, how are you, I guess, helping companies leverage that, that previous network of clients they've had? Well, so, so the answer is yes, all of that. Um, and a the, lot more. <laughs> yeah. You know, the great thing about being, I, I really love niche companies, right? So that, the first software company we were talking about, right, that was in this very specific niche, mm-hmm. mid-sized law firms. 
And there's a, a really wonderful thing about really knowing who your customer is and having a target audience. And the fact that we're all on LinkedIn now means that we can build a network of exactly the right prospects for us, right? It's like the, it's like the ideal networking event. I only get to meet the people I want to, the ones that are the right prospect for me. I don't have to eat horrible food while I'm there. And I, got, I get to talk to them forever after. And, and so it's really the perfect way to grow, you know, any niche B2B business. Right. Uh, and then if you're doing that, the, the best way to do it is to, is really a, uh, is sharing your expertise. Take, take the thing. So if, you know, if I'm working in, with law firms, well, I have a unique perspective across hundreds of law firms that I've worked with. And I may be talking to the managing partner of a particular firm who is, you know, a deep expert in what they do, but they're running their one firm. And I get to bring this perspective to them that is across hundreds and hundreds of firms, which means I have tremendous value that I can share with them. Yes. And if you take that perspective in whatever niche you're in, that's your best marketing right there. Right. Right. And it, and, and you're leveraging a strength that you, you have. And the nice thing about it is, is we really are one degree of separation from virtually everybody on the planet now electronically. So, I mean, you know, we, it's not like you have to travel and try to catch them at an, at an event or go to their office or whatever. You literally can, can catch them that day if, if you needed to. But so I, you, you touched on a little bit about how things are going to kind of change and transition. So I'd, I'd like to get your take a little bit on, you know, this current crisis we're, we're facing and this pandemic that we're, we're dealing with. And um, one question I have is, you know, if you're speaking to kind of early stage founders and they're, you know, they're kind of floundering through this time or whatever, what's a, what's a couple of just hopeful hints that you could like kind of leave them with number one and number two, I'm just curious of your take on what you think, you know, new business normal is going to look like on the backside of this. Well, so I'll start with the end there. You know, the new normal is the same as it was going to be, but 10 years ahead. Yeah. Because we're taking what, whatever trends you've been following in your business and in the, the, you know, the industries that you're focused on, whatever you were thinking about, oh, 10 years from now, we're going to be here. Well, that's this year and it's now. And so what we're seeing with remote work, with everybody uh, communicating on Zoom, is taking all these trends and just compress the timeline and making it happen right now. Mm-hmm. And, and so we can see where we're going to be, but right now is the time for you to be working on how are you going to change your business to match that. So I, I, I put a lot of time looking, even though we, I tend to specialize and, and at Boomtime we specialize in B2B, I look at the trends in B2C to see the expectations that are being set on the business side. Because we're now all getting to accustomed to our groceries are being delivered, our meals are being delivered. Right. Whatever I want is showing up at my doorstep the moment I want it. Well, those expectations are gonna translate into the business world. I'm no longer gonna be waiting to make a trip in order to make a decision. I'm expecting to be able to find it out right now. I'm expecting to be delivered to me the moment that I want it, whatever, whatever that product or service is. So now's the time for you to be figuring out how are you going to change your business in, in order to be able to address exactly that? And how are you going to find new sales opportunities that are no longer dependent on meeting people face-to-face? And that trend that was already occurring, which is that our prospects are so much better educated than they ever were before. Mm-hmm. 
So are you part of that education process or is your company so dominant that you can just be an order taker and, and when somebody's decided they want their service, you happen to be there for them? Well, that's great if you're the huge company in the market. My clients, my startups, they're the, they're the disruptors, they're the small businesses. So if you wanna participate in that, you've gotta be out there educating your prospects so that you're creating sales opportunities that wouldn't otherwise exist. And once again, this expertise-driven approach to marketing, it's the ideal way yep. to, to do that. Yep. So it, it is tough to be in the middle of this crisis. It's really difficult to raise money right now. You know what? Most, most businesses shouldn't raise money from outside investors because the same amount of effort you put into that, you can generate a lot more business than you can ever get in, in raising money. And, and so, you, you know, 1% of startups should actually raise professional investment because they have a realistic shot of creating a 20x return on that investment. Mm -hmm. yep. Everybody else should figure out how to build a product and go sell it because creating that revenue is going to be a much more valuable uh, use of your time than talking to a bunch of investors who, by the way, the, the moment you accept money from them, you just committed to sell your company. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Most entrepreneurs don't get that. Like yep. you take that check, you just said, I'm going to sell this company exactly. on a timeline that somebody else is going to determine for me. That, that may not be a great idea for your business. Yep. So this is the perfect time to build a business that really meets the needs that clients have today. The best companies are born out of recessions. Mm -hmm. And some of that's because you have to be really strong and focused to survive in a recession. But then if you do that, you have less competition, right? You have less noise to compete against. Like every marketing campaign we're running right now is working better than it was three months ago. We're getting more response. I mean, we have the, the average number of visits to, and of course these are businesses that have relevancy in the time period we're talking about, yeah. right? So yeah. It's not so great if you're running a restaurant. Exactly. Yeah. But if you've changed your messaging to be relevant to what people care about right now, you know, we're looking at 50, 80%, 100% increase in visits to websites, much higher open rights, much higher engagement with interactions and posts on LinkedIn, higher acceptance rate to connection requests because we're all spending more time online. It's easier to get people's attention right now. Is revenue proportional? I mean, so it's one thing to have people visit your site. It's one thing to have them click on links. It's one thing to have them look at it and consider. But is the is the revenue also increasing at 100% or 50% or whatever? Or is it just more activity and, and I guess, interest right now? I mean, is, is it directly proportional? Well, absolutely. It's, it's not. I mean, there are lucky cases where it is, right? Mm -hmm. So like the alcohol home delivery service, right? You know, that's taken <laughs> off like crazy. Yeah, exactly. Um, most of us aren't lucky enough to be in that place. Um, and that's, that's why you get this disconnect of where people pull back from marketing during a recession like this, mm -hmm. because it doesn't directly translate today into the same level of revenue. What you're doing though is planting seeds that are going to turn into a lot more revenue down the road. Yeah. You have to be willing to make that investment today in, in your time and your effort of getting in front of that audience. But because it's easier to make those connections and build that audience today, the payoff is actually outsized now mm -hmm. compared to when, when times are great. Right. But yeah, you have to have the staying power to last long enough to, to take advantage yeah. of that.
you know, and see that the, the end of end result of the of the activity you're doing now. So, Bill, I, I could sit here and, and continue to ask you questions all day long, but I know you actually have a business to run someday, and and uh, I'd certainly want to honor your time. But is there anything that we haven't touched on today that you that you would like to share with our audience here as we kind of wrap up and uh, just tell people where the best place to find you online or find your company? Yeah, so you can you can reach out to me at, at CEO at boomtime.com. You can find me on LinkedIn where, where I'm demonstrating exactly the things that I that I recommend that uh, that that you do. Our our website, of course, is boomtime.com. And you know, our approach is to lay out all the things we have learned and just share it with you. So you can you can go see exactly what we figured out what, what has worked, and you can turn around and and uh, and do it yourself. I've I followed in your footsteps. I've I've created the B2B word of mouth marketing podcast. We're not nearly as far as long as you, but it is a lot of fun to do. <laughs> um, and we just share all the things we've learned in, uh, in doing this. Well, Bill, I just really appreciate your time today. And it's, it's been great kind of hearing your story. And, and we certainly want to congratulate you on, on you know, your, your unicorn that you started as, a, as an 18-year-older and, and exited. And you're, you may be one of the most successful guests we've ever had on, on Rising Tide. You know, maybe, maybe the most successful guest we ever had on Rising Tide. But I just want to thank you again for, for just you know, openly just sharing with our audience and, and giving, dropping a lot of value for us today. And, and really just kind of walking us through this, this time that at the very end of the chat, how difficult this is with the with COVID-19 that we're all dealing with and kind of locked up, but also seeing opportunity in this, in this time as well and, you know, taking advantage of that. So, Bill, thanks again. And just thank you for helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Kevin. It's been a lot of fun. Another episode in the books. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes and YouTube. As always, thanks for listening to Rising Tide.